So please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So we continue our study of the first chapter of Ephesians. Well, recently I, I, I read a post asking the question, uh, has anyone ever really inherited a ton of money from somebody they didn't know? Like an uncle that you didn't know, or an aunt that you didn't know. And the author of the article said this, well, if, if you're like, well, pretty much everyone, then you've received one of those emails that told you that of someone that you've never met before that has given you like a million dollars. And all you need to do is respond to the email, click the link, and give them your bank details so they know exactly where to send the money. But beyond the joke of the email that everyone has received, has anyone really ever received a ton of money from somebody they didn't know? The answer is yes. Um, and the author listed several examples. One was uh, Dr. Menzaros, who upon his death, he left $50,000, and that was in 1930s money, so that's equivalent to about seven hundred, over $700,000 in today's money. He willed a, that amount of money to someone he had never met. It was an actress he had seen, and he never met her. She never knew him, and he gave her that amount of money. Case two, uh, also in about the same era, 1925, Lillian Malrup, who was also an actress, but um, this had nothing to do with her acting, she inherited $60,000 from her uncle. Her uncle made money in the gold rush along with his business partner. So $60,000 in 1925 is like eight hundred, over $800,000 in today's money. So nothing to, to wink at. But what's interesting is that five years later, she received another gift. This is after her uncle's death. Her business, his business partner, who he had, she had never met this business partner. She had only heard of him from some of her uncle's letters. So this business partner of her uncle left her a whopping $700,000. This is a 1930s money, so this is about over $10 million. She had never met the man. Now you hear true stories of the, like these, and there are others who you go through, and you think, oh, that could never happen to me. And you're probably right. It's not that common <laughs> that you that you just get money from somebody you, you never met. It doesn't happen that frequently. Yet as we think about the blessings that God has given us, we've actually inherited far more than any kind of monetary inheritance that somebody would give us. Something far richer, something that's not going to rot, something that can't be stolen, something that can't be impacted by inflation something that can't depreciate, and something that you can actually take with you into the eternal state. Because you can't take any of the cash with you. That's staying here. But while Paul, while Paul could pile up a long list of blessings for us, and he, and he does in a sense, he, he lists these blessings. We've been marching through them uh, slowly in, in Ephesians 1. In this passage we're going to look at this morning, there's going to be a debate about that I'll get into later, but I don't think that he's piling up these blessings as an inheritance and saying, here you are. 
He's doing something a little more significant than that. He's pointing us not to the inheritance or the blessings that God gives, and indeed he does give blessings, but he's pointing us to the blesser, the one who actually gives those blessings. And I'll make my case through that. But understand that it's much more significant to be in connection and relationship with God who is the the blesser, the giver of all blessings, than it is to receive the blessings. And sometimes as Christians, we get that all backwards. We're like, we're happy if we get stuff. If our life is happy, even if our relationship with God isn't as healthy as it should be. When it's our relationship with God is, is healthy and what it should be, it's those, those earthly blessings kind of fade away in importance. And that's what I want to help us to see today. And I think that's an, and Paul's an, an intent with the verses we'll look at today, which I tend to look at verses 11 and 12, but we're not going to make it through all, all of that. There's just a lot packed in here, and I don't want to sh- rush through this. So let's read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 together. I'm, I'm reading these verses because they are one paragraph in, in the Greek. And they belong together and it helps us keep the bigger picture in mind. So let's begin at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in him, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our lives this morning. Well, this morning, I want you to see from, really from verses 11 and 12, that, that God um, has, has given us multiplied reasons to, to praise him. Here, Paul provides three compelling reasons to praise the glory of God. Three compelling reasons to praise the glory of God. And the first one is, found in, the, in verse 11, is his choice of making you his inheritance. His choice of making you his inheritance. And this comes from the first part of, of verse 1. In him, we have been made an inheritance. Now, I want to exp- explain the realm of his choice of making you in his inheritance. Think about that, the first little prepositional phrase, in him. It's actually in whom, but the most translations use in him to help you understand this is pointing us back 
to the verse that came before. So in him. So when you see something like that in him, in whom you 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 think about a pronoun, what is that pronoun representing? It's representing the noun. So you got to move backwards in the text to figure out who this is referring to. So you look, go back to verse 10. Um, it's Again, you see in him. That's a summing up of all things in him. Well, he, who is that referring to? Back up a little bit more. Summing up of all things in Christ. Okay, so that's how you that's how you look at your Bibles. That's how you read your Bibles and figure out who that pronoun is referring to. Here it's it's made simpler for you because your translate your Bible probably uses capital pronouns to refer to deity. But again, it helps you understand: is this the Father? Is this the Son? Is this the Spirit? So this is referring to be in Christ. So the first thing we're going to point point to is the fact that you're made an inheritance in Christ. And I want to make sure that you understand what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You have faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith, I don't mean just that you have, that you believe certain facts, but that, that your, that the belief is akin to trust. You are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are trusting in Jesus Christ to give you eternal life. You are trusting in Jesus Christ uh, to lead you, to guide you, to protect you, and to provide everything that you need. There are, there are several verses, I think, that nicely sum up what it means to be in Christ. Uh, one of these is Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, there Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Notice, notice how Paul talks, and you you might say, you might read that and say, Paul, you're mad, you're mad, you're crazy, because he says it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, but the life which I now live, it's like, okay, Paul, which is it? Well, the answer is it's both. It, it it's not that that Christ takes over you and makes you an Autobot, makes you some computer, makes you unthinking. It's that Christ comes to live within you. And it's Christ's life in you, and yet you live as well. You have decisions to make, to to follow Christ. It's you. And he says, he says, he says there, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that faith is now impacting how Paul lives, and yet he knows that it's not him, it's Christ in him. There's such a connection between, when you're in Christ, between you and Christ, it's, it's, it's inseparable. Is this Christ that's giving me faith, or is it me having faith? The answer is, yes, it's both. Not one or the other. Another passage we could turn to is in Ephesians. You can easily reference this as I read Ephesians 2, and I'll read verses 1 and then verses 4 and 6. And you are dead in your transgressions and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here you're dead spiritually before you were saved, but now you're made alive in Christ. You live in Christ. You cannot live without Christ or apart from Christ. You only live in Christ. So this is what it means to be in Christ. And and the blessings that God blesses us with 
only flow to us because of us being in Christ. And this is the significant part of this whole paragraph. And I just want to point some things out. Follow along with me as I begin in verse 3. Like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? Whom? In Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved, which is a phrase referring to Christ. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8. Which he caused us to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. It's one of the few verses that doesn't have that phrase. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in him. Verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Verse 11, in him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in verse 14, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So only two verses in all that that doesn't have in him, in Christ, in the beloved. Okay? That is a major emphasis of all these blessings. So all these blessings that we're talking about only flow to people through Christ, in Christ. And that requires faith. Faith for you to plate your trust in Him. So understand, believers, that, that though you are called to obedience, your obedience never earns you blessings with God. And that may be a little bit hard to understand because God does reward obedience. Don't get me wrong. He rewards obedience, but our obedience is never perfect. Your obedience is never perfect. My obedience is never perfect from God's standpoint. So the, even even that that reward for obedience is given through Christ in a grace because your love isn't perfect and um, your prayers aren't perfect. But in Christ, you get welcomed into the family of God. And so understand that there's just no way to to um, overemphasize the importance of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And these gifts that we're talking about are grace gifts that flow to us only through Jesus Christ. Now to those who this morning who might not be regenerate or you might not know where you stand. You're not you're not sure if you're regenerate, if you are in Christ or not. Know that to escape the wrath of God. You must flee to Christ. God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge your sin. The only way that you can escape that judgment is by fleeing to Christ, taking refuge in him, by believing in him. And again, when I say believe, that requires trust, requires faith, putting your faith in him. The same way that you put your faith in that chair that you're now sitting in, that it wouldn't collapse. You 
that's a, a, a simple example, but in a more significant way, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. You must believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. So that God will transfer the, the guilt of your sins onto the penalty that Christ has already paid and give you the righteousness of Christ in him. And that's referenced in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So it is in him that all our blessings flow, including the next one we're going to talk about, which is the, his choice of making you his inheritance. Now, I've been reading the Legacy Standard Bible, and, and there, it says, in him you have been made an inheritance. Now, in our men's uh, study that we're doing, we learned how to study the Bible. And one of the tools of observation that we learned that you can use because we have a rich heritage of, of good Bible translations, good English translations, is you take uh, English translations and you, you read in those different translations. And by reading the different translations, you can kind of see that there's issues I say issues, that there's things going on in the Greek. You might not know any Greek. You don't have to know any Greek. You can just use those various translations to help you see that something is going on. So you might have noticed that as I read it, unless you had a Legacy Standard Bible read in front of you. Just, just let me cover these just a, a moment. So Legacy Standard Bible, we have been made an inheritance. Uh, the NASB 95, New King James Version, ESV, we have obtained an inheritance. The um, HCSB says we have received an inheritance, so it's similar to obtain. Uh, and that Bible, New English translation, would say we have been claimed as God's own possession. And then the NIV says we were also chosen. That's a wide range. You were made an inheritance, you received an inheritance, or you were chosen. So those are the three three main ways that this verse can be translated. And I want us to walk through it because of the wide range of translations. I think it's helpful if we take if we just slow down and, and walk through this. So, like I said before, differences in translation help you see that there's something going on in the Greek that scholars aren't aren't in agreement about. Sometimes it's that there's uh, the Greek the actual Greek word is in debate. So that's called a manuscript debate. But in this case, there's none. And a a good Bible is going to show you that. If you have a Legacy Standard Reference Bible or a MacArthur Study Bible, it's going to show you where there is debates about the manuscript. It'll also show you debates about the translation, which the Legacy Standard Bible also notes. that They they translate this, we have been made an inheritance, but they say it could also be we have obtained an inheritance. So how how do you reach a decision on uh, the meaning of this particular verse. Well, when you when you need to understand the meaning of a word, what do you do? Well, the first thing I would say is examine the context. Read the context. Read the verse in context. Because context lots of times helps us. So in this case, is the idea of having been chosen, like the NIV, is the idea of having been chosen consistent with the context of Ephesians 1? Well, yeah, it is. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Right? There's there's a theme of, of that that God has chosen us and He's predestined us. Um, even in the same verse, in verse eleven, there's the word predestined that's used. Um, the secondly is the idea of an obtaining an inheritance consistent with the context of Ephesians. 
And here again, I would have to say, yes, look at verse 14. What does verse 14 say? It says, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So we do have an inheritance. So context at this point supports both those. Well, let's look at the next one. Is the idea of being made an inheritance consistent with the context of Ephesians? And here again, I have to say, yes. Look at verse 14 again. Just keep reading. Unto the redemption of God's own possession. Who's the God's own possession? That's us. So the possession implies an inheritance. So even there, context supports it. So with all three translations, you can support it from the context. So in this case, the context isn't all that helpful in determining like which one you should uh, is is the right translation. And I would affirm that that um, though all of these three are theologically true, and you could go to to verses in the Bible to support all these three, there is one meaning to this particular word. It's not as if Paul meant all of that. And so we, we affirm that when the Holy Spirit gave this word to Paul, the original hearers would have understood it. They, they weren't as far removed from it as we were, so they would have understood what he meant by that. And he had one meaning in mind, and that's what we're trying to get at, authorial intent. Now, in a, if, you, if the context doesn't help, sometimes you can go to, to that, the uses of that word in other places. You would, you would look at Ephesians, see if it's used there. You would look at the New Testament, see if it's used there. But it's not. This is the only place in the whole entire New Testament where this particular verb is used. So that doesn't help us either. Now you could look it up in a dictionary. You go to a Bible dictionary and say, well, they must get it right. Um, but one of the problems of a, of a Bible dictionary, and it's not really a problem, it's just something you need to be aware of, is, and it's true with our English dictionaries, is dictionaries give you a range of meanings. Yeah. They don't, and some of them will say, well, it means this in this passage, but recognize that that's an interpretation. Yeah. What they can give you accurately is the range of meanings. So if we were to go to a dictionary and look at the range of meanings, it would say this, and this really comes from classical Greek. So if you heard the term classical Greek, what that refers to is a, is a period of time several hundred years before Christ. And you know what happens to language over time? It does what? It changes. So just like English changes with time, so too do Greek. So just because classical Greek interpreted a certain way doesn't guarantee that New Testament Greek actually holds that same meaning. But, but nonetheless, if you look up a dictionary, the word means either to a point by lot, by the, by the casting of lots, or to obtain by lot, to a point by lot, or to obtain by lot. And a third would be to, to a lot, or a sign, or a point. Again, by, in the idea of, of casting a lot. So, does that really help us? To assign by lot? Well, understand that by lot in the Old Testament, of course, pagan uses, pagans would do that and say, well, it's luck. Right? But the scriptures clearly tell us that God is behind every decision of the casting of lots in, in the scriptures. So God is even control over the, the casting of a, of a lot. So the word, the dictionary doesn't really help us. It gets us in a ballpark, but it doesn't really help us to understand, to settle the debate on which way this, this particular phrase should be translated. Now, another place we can turn to help is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What happened is the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and, and Aramaic. But over time, people lost the language, the Hebrews, because they were, they were captives in a foreign land. They eventually lost 
the use of Hebrew, except for a few scholars. So eventually, by Jesus' time, they would have been using a Greek translation of their Old Testament. They would not have been reading the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the, that Greek translation helps us sometimes to understand words. So we could turn there. And, and when we do that, we, we do find that that um, the um, some help, a little bit of, of help there. Uh, not much, but a little bit. In, in 1 Samuel 14, 41, it's used. And there is a, it, that's the situation where Saul was the king of Israel and he had commanded his army not to eat anything until nightfall and he had defeated his enemies. And Jonathan, unbeknownst to him, uh, did not know his father's command because he was not there when his father gave it. And it says when they were fighting in the forest, he found some honey and he... He ate some honey and it strengthened him. And so when all that is discovered, Saul is trying to figure out who is the guilty party. And in that, he asked God to choose by lot who the guilty one is. And in that, that's how it's used in that particular context, choosing by lot. Again, by understanding that by lot, we don't mean luck, we mean by God's provident control. But again, this this doesn't necessarily help us understand the translation because you notice that not many of the, the, the translations don't bring in that we were like chosen by lot. There's one that says chosen, but the other one says we were made an inheritance. The other one says you received an inheritance. But, but the reason they, they do that is because often the word, the idea of casting a lot is coupled with receiving an inheritance or receiving uh, the, a land portion. Uh, uh, when the Israelites went into the land of Israel, Moses decided, or uh, and Joshua really decided, who would who would get uh, which tribe by lot. So it wasn't Joshua deciding, but Joshua casting a lot to see which tribe would get which portion of land. Now I I I, I bring these things up just to help us walk through what does Bible study look like when a difficult passage like this. Okay, so it's a little bit. It's not sermon-esque, but hopefully it helps you to understand how I would approach this and how you could approach this. So at this stage, you're not really helped by any of the normal methods. So then you get a good commentary. And if you don't have access to a good commentary, that's when you begin looking for a good sermon on that passage to see, to, to glean what the pastor can glean. You, you, at times, problems do force us that you have to get into the, to the Greek or the Hebrew, whatever passages. And it's those scholars that know that that can help us walk through this. Um, so I'll walk you through an assessment of what I think is the right answer here. And I say I think because it's it's not. Um, I think we need to hold this the conclusion tentative because of the, of the difficulty of this particular passage. But I'll, I'll walk you through what I think is the best answer. So the NIV translates this as "We were chosen," and again they do that because it they want to convey several things. One is, notice it's a passive voice. We were chosen. Right? And they're trying to do that because the Greek's a passive voice. Uh, the translation accurately conveys the, the idea that of God choosing. But it leaves out the idea that choosing is being done by lot. And again, by lot, I don't mean luck. I mean by God's, God's providence. Um, and one problem with this translation is it turns Paul's words into mere repetition of what he has already said in in verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
So that's one of the, the I say one of the weaknesses of, of this particular translation is it it looks like in English that Paul's saying the same thing when in fact he's not saying the same thing. It's not the same Greek word. Uh, the NASB 95 ESV, uh, I think New King James Version, translates this as we have obtained an inheritance. Now understand that, that we have obtained an inheritance or we have been chosen or we have been made an inheritance. That whole entire phrase is wrapped up in one Greek verb. So we're looking at multiple words in the English, but it's really just one Greek word that's under debate here. So the, the NASB translates this as we have obtained an inheritance. So this, this version accurately conveys the idea of an inheritance because the judgments God made for Israel through casting lots are frequently associated with some kind of inheritance. And that's why most versions go with the idea of inheritance in that. So whether you're receiving an inheritance or you've been made an inheritance. Um, an important consideration here is that the Greek verb is given as a past tense. Um, so how do you, if, if we have received an inheritance, you understand that we haven't really fully received it yet, and yet it's written in the past tense. So you have to interpret that as, as, as a past tense being used in such a sure manner that it's spoken of as already happening. And, and Scripture does that in other places. So that's, that's perfectly acceptable. But that's what Paul would be saying. If, if, this, if that is accurate, Paul would be saying, we've received an inheritance Really haven't received in fullness because we're going to, he's going to talk about there's a seal of the Holy Spirit to actually ensure that inheritance later. So we haven't received it in full, but it's it's so sure of happening that he Paul speaks of it as in a past tense nature, as having already been been given. Now those who would accept this view um, that that um, see this as as the best translation of trying to convey that because of what's going on within the the verse. But there's some weaknesses with this view. Commentator Harold Horner points to the fact that, that the translation to obtain an inheritance would be appropriate if the object obtained was explicitly expressed. So if the object that was inherited was ex explicitly expressed, then that, that translation would be appropriate. Now in the English, it's kind of hidden. He would say, we have received an inheritance. Looks like the object, the object would be inheritance. But what he's saying is, if the object of the inheritance we have received, for example, as an inheritance, eternal life. That would be an example where that would be that would be appropriate and right. But he's saying grammatically it, it's not the best interpretation because there isn't an object that's expressly um, uh, stated in that verse. Another problem with this translation is that it can be interpreted as an active voice. Uh, I debated too long over this, whether whether the English was passive or active, and some of you are saying, what is active and what is passive? Well, some of you are listening actively right now. Some of you are listening passively right now. <laughs> so what, what I mean by that is some are actually listening and taking notes and thinking about what I'm saying, and some of you perhaps have phased out, and you're hearing my voice, but you're not hearing the intent of what I'm saying. Uh, I, I guess a simple way to, to express active and passive voice is that uh, it's through like a simple sentence. So the, the dog bit the man is an active voice. It's, it's past tense, but it's active voice. The dog bit the man. Whereas if you put that in a passive, the man was bitten by the dog. So that's stated in a passive way. Um, 
Now, why is it important to, to relay it as a passive? Because the Greek is a passive. The Greek is a passive verb. And so um, that we're made an inheritance in more of an active sense. So that's one of the weaknesses of the translation. Which is why the LSB translate this as we have been made an inheritance. And the LSB isn't alone in this. You can find other versions that actually do this. Most notably, the American Standard Version, which goes back a long ways to 1901, I think is when it was originally translated. It's, it's hard to read, but it is actually one of the most literal versions even to this day, um, as far as word for word. But because of that, it's wooden. It's, it, it, it's like choppy. It's hard to read sometimes. But it, but it, talks, it uses the same idea of um, inheritance uses the word, uh, a different word there, but it's the same idea. Now, so it, again, this translation conveys the idea of inheritance, but it puts it in a passive sense. We have been made an inheritance instead of receiving an inheritance. So the translation means that believers are the inheritance that God receives. So what's my conclusion? Well, I, first of all, I'll say that all the views are within orthodoxy. All the views are ones you could go to other places, other scriptures, and say, yes, we're an inherit- we, we are made an inheritance, yes, we are given uh, an inheritance, and yes, we've been chosen. So all are within or- orthodoxy. Um, obviously, this is a difficult text because so many different translations translate it differently. But I do believe that the LSB's preference for the passive voice makes that translation better because it better represents what's actually going on in the Greek. Um, the LSB's we have been made an inheritance uh, is it seems to be more more accurate and and in, in addition to that we have been made an inheritance seems to fit flow better into the participle which we'll talk about in a minute having been predestined that seems to fit better than rather than saying we have been given an inheritance and then we have you know predestined look at verse four he says having been predestined so. Uh, it just it logically flows better to say we have been made an inheritance having been predestined. And again, this is this is one of those cases where I can't be dogmatic on it, but that's that's what I think is the best understanding of the, the text. Um, Harold Horner um, says this. He says it seems best to see uh, this as a re- as referring to the believers assigned as God's inheritance. Uh, heritage or inheritance. So given all these things. So that's where he lands. And I think it made really good sense. So I land there as well. Now now Paul seems to be making mention of this concept in two other places in Ephesians. Uh, look at Ephesians 1.14. And just we'll study the verse in depth when we get there. But talking about the spirit. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession. Uh, to the praise of his glory. So there's a similar concept there that we're God's possession. But then also, if you look at verse 18, you see there in Paul's prayer, again, we'll get to that in more detail, but he says there, he says, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So clearly it's God's inheritance in the saints. So, um, the scriptures clearly say that we have been made an inheritance of God. And we must rightly understand that. I can see a false teacher saying, oh yeah, we, we're God's inheritance. Isn't he so lucky to, uh, to, get, to get us? 
Uh, I say that mockingly, and I even hate to use those words. But there is a, a great divide between us and God. And I recently heard a, someone who masquerades as a pastor on the national level and national influence, but is really a false teacher, say that whatever God is, we are. Wrong. Wrong. So understand that when you receive an inheritance, when you receive an inheritance from God, that's a massive blessing you didn't deserve. And God has given you something you don't have. But when we're God's inheritance, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't convey the same kind of idea. So God is the owner and creator of everything. But what could you possibly give him that he doesn't already have? Well, nothing. And God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need your prayer, your praise. So there's, God gains nothing from this. You gain everything. So, so why is this a blessing? It's a blessing because when people are God's possession, he, he cherishes you and he cares for you. He provides for you. He's protecting you. Just as you would protect uh, a physical earthly inheritance. You wouldn't squander that. You wouldn't let somebody steal it. Right? In the same way, God takes care of his possession, his people. And the idea that God chooses certain people for himself is revealed in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Let me just read a few of these. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Thus you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy. I have separated you from the peoples to be mine. He's speaking to Israel. So there were the nations, and there was his possession, Israel. Deuteronomy 4.20 But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as today. Deuteronomy 7.6 For you are a holy people to Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession and of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And, and you could just go on and on and looking at verses like this throughout the Old Testament. But this that idea is also flows in the New Testament. Some of you might be thinking of 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And is found here in Titus. And I want you to turn to Titus because I want you to see this. Titus 2. Titus chapter 2. And look for the idea that the redeemed are God's own possession. In verse 11. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denied ungodliness and worldly desires we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So Christ died, yes, to forgive your sins, but he died to purify you so that you could become his cherished possession. And that purifying is absolutely necessary in order for Lord to, for us to be the Lord's cherished possession. That change has to occur. So the first compelling reason to praise God 
To praise the glory of God is his choice of making you his inheritance. His choice. And let's look at the second. We're just going to get started into this. The second compelling reason to praise the glory of God is his commitment to making you his inheritance. So if you go back to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, it's not only that God has made you his inheritance, it's that he's committed. You need to see that his commitment to making you his inheritance. And here, just look at the remainder of or the next phrase, really. In, 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 sorry, in verse 11, he says, In him we, have all, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's commitment to making you his inheritance is seen in his past actions and in his ongoing actions. And we're going to look at those and we're just going to get started into that and we'll continue next week. First, look at his what has God done? His past actions. He has predestined you to be his inheritance. He's predestined you. And Paul makes this clear. In him we have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. The, the cause of you being made an inheritance, God's inheritance, is God's act of predestining you. Now, the verb predestined here in verse 11 is exactly the same verb that is used in verse 4. That's a different, different it's not the same form, but it's the same word. It carries the same meaning. And, and even in non-Christian usage, this word, this Greek word predestined, uh, means to decide beforehand. You know, sometimes when words are debated, like the one we just looked at, if you go look at a, at a good, thorough dictionary, there's going to be a long entry. And there's this, there's this consideration, that consideration. I mean, it goes on for pages, and it's sometimes difficult to assimilate at the end. Okay, what does this actually mean? But you go look at a dictionary for predestined, and it's not actually that long of an entry. Because the meaning is not debated. It means to decide beforehand. Period. Now, I want to show you, take you some verses to help you see this from verses from from places in the scripture that really don't deal necessarily with with salvation, because sometimes when we talk about predestined salvation inheritance, that can be very emotional and it can be sensitive. So let's set that aside a minute. We can go to other verses in the New Testament to see how this word is used. So I want to take you to Second Corinthians. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, Second Corinthians. Chapter 9. Now, if you know 2 Corinthians 9, it's not dealing with salvation at all. Not even in the context. 2 Corinthians 9, and we're really going to be looking at verses 6 and 7, just for sake of time, just jumping in. Paul's talking about giving. Giving financially, not, not giving of yourself, but giving financially to help others, to support the ministries that are going on. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly, in verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now you say, where is the word predestination? It's in the word purpose. It's the same word. Just using a slightly different idea because it's not, it's not conveying that your your decision has been predetermined like long ago, but, but you purposed. Paul, Paul's point is this. 
Do what you purpose to do. Whatever you decided to do, he's telling the Corinthians, that's what you give. So there's a big debate in some churches on, on what you give. Paul's saying, give what you intended to give. In other words, you know, sometimes when you intend to give generously, then, you know, greed creeps in, or you think about other things that you could buy with that money, or you have other ways you can use the money. And Paul's just saying, don't let that happen. Do what you purpose to do. Do what you determined beforehand, what you decided beforehand to do, do. So again, it's, it's, this isn't a context of salvation, but it clearly shows the word means, like the, the idea of purpose, you decided beforehand, you purposed to give a certain amount, Paul's just saying, give it. Don't let, don't let greed or anything like that crop in and, and keep you from doing what you intended to do. Uh, Acts 4.28 is another passage. And I think it's important that you turn to these and see them so you can let the word of God, you can examine things as I'm, as I'm speaking about them so you can see it for yourself. I'm going to read verses uh, 27 and, tw- and, and 28. And this is when Peter and John are threatened and then later released. And here, um, when they were released, they, they prayed um, to God, and this is part of their prayer. So look at verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Let that sink in. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The point of verse 28 is clear. God predestined every evil action that the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the peoples of Israel did in their persecution of Jesus Christ. But keep in mind, God's not the chargeable cause for that. But this word clearly says that he, that according to his will, your hand, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, whatever. And that means everything that happened to Christ. Every little thing. Every evil act, God predestined that. So every slap, every spit, the crown of thorns, the nails in the hands and the feet, his death, everything was ordained by God. That does not relieve the Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the Jews innocent in the matter. God will hold them guilty. They are guilty of crucifying the Messiah. They are guilty of blasphemy. They are guilty of spitting in the face of God, showing ultimate disrespect. And they will be held accountable for their sins. You see, this is, this is what the scriptures teach. When you understand that God is, that he predestines all things that, comes, that come to pass, a lot of time in our human minds we think, well, I guess we can't do anything. It's not our fault. But that's not at all what Scripture says. Scripture says that men and women are fully responsible for every decision they make. Every decision you make, you're responsible for. You can never say, well, I guess this is just how it is because God's determined it. 
That's not what scripture says. And, and someone might say, well, how can God be totally sovereign over every single decision? And yet I am held responsible. Well, the scriptures doesn't, doesn't, they don't tell us that. Um, in fact, this is probably a, a really good place for us to just see how Paul responds to something like that. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. and I think it's important to get a lot of the context here, so I'm just going to take the time to read it. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins had not yet been born and had not, not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now watch Paul's line of argument. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? And what's Paul's answer? May it never be. And the, and the Greek wording there is, is it's the strongest negation possible in the Greek language. And, and it's accurately translated, may it never be. Not, 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 just, not just no, but may it never be. No, there's no unrighteousness in God. For he says, continuing verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's saying, I can have mercy upon whomever I have mercy upon and it doesn't obligate me to have mercy on everyone. I'll have compassion upon whom I have compassion. It's my choice. I made you all. It's my choice as the potter. That's what God says. He made you. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say then to me, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? You know, Paul's logic here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is excellent. He's going through your line of arguments. He's going through what's going through your head. But why does he still find fault? God, you made me this way. Have you predestined everything? You have, you have mercy upon whom you have mercy? Why do you find fault with me? For who resists his will? How does Paul answer that? He says, on the contrary. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Notice he doesn't really answer it. He just says you're out of line question is completely out of line. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? 
Or does not have the potter have the authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So Paul is building a very strong argument for the complete sovereignty of God, the complete providence of God, the complete predestination of all that comes to be, and at the same time, holds you responsible for your decisions. No man can, can, will, will face God and be able to say his, uh, uh, in defense, well, you made me this way, it's your fault. No. Now, these things battle in the human mind. Like we think God has to be absolutely sovereign or man has to be kind of sovereign in a sense. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says God is completely sovereign and you are responsible for every action, every word, every careless word is what actually Jesus says. Every word. You're responsible. But God ordained it. These things are clear from Scripture. And I want you to wrestle with these things. Right? Go back to these passages and read and reread over them. Uh, another passage I want to take us to to help us see the word predestined means to decide beforehand is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2. Verses uh, 6 to 8. First Corinthians 2, 6 to 8. Yet we do speak wisdom. Well, let me just back up and read verses 1 to 5. It helps you get the context. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, that is when he came to Corinth, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the wit, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying when he went there, he did a bunch of like uh, supernatural tricks to convince everybody that he was that he was who he said he was and his message was true. What he's saying is he didn't adopt the common manipulative methods of speakers of that day to manipulate his audience. What did he do? He came with the plain, simple gospel, which that's why he says, I came to you in fear and in weakness. Because he's speaking in, in human terms. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But when Paul came, he came to a group that had largely rejected the wisdom of God. So to them, the wisdom of God is foolishness. Paul already covered that in chapter 1. And so that's why he's coming with his, his weak message, so to speak. But the power of God is demonstrated in that he, he uses that so-called weak message to convert souls. And that's where the power of God, that the spirit working in people's lives, is made manifest. Magicians can do cheap tricks, but they can't change hearts. God changed hearts. You've seen it. You've experienced it. You've, you've seen it in your own life or in other people's lives where he just changes your heart to radically transform your thinking on this. And then he picks up with that. He's in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom. He says, don't get me wrong. 
I preach a weak message accommodating to the wisdom of the world. But he says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. There's the word predestined again. God chose beforehand to take his wise message and make it a bit of a mystery, to cloak it. That was God's decisions beforehand. And Paul even tells us when that happened. He says predestined in verse 7, predestined before the ages. Before the ages, that's, that's similar to Paul's language. So they use it when Paul, he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And that's what it means, before the ages. So not only did God choose you before the foundation of the world, but God chose to bring forth the gospel in a bit of a mystery. Remember, a mystery in New Testament sense is something that God chose to hide for a while, but is now made manifest. It, it, it's no longer a mystery because God has revealed it, but he's revealed it with the help of the Spirit to those who have the Spirit so they can understand his word. So again, the, the word predestined means to decide beforehand. Now, Sometimes people will say, well, well, yeah, but what about God's foreknowledge? And I've mentioned this before, but I want to I press in a little bit on this. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Peter tells us this. He says that believers are those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And some might say, yeah, yeah, there you go. There's the passage you've been neglecting. Not only is God predestined, but he's, there's foreknowledge, there's God's foreknowledge involved, and, and you see that his foreknowledge then impacted his decision on choosing you, but, but that's all a misunderstanding of the word foreknowledge. There, there are at least three good theological reasons why this passage does not mean that God's foreknowledge influenced his choice of you. First of all, it makes man sovereign in salvation. There's no way to avoid that. Either you believe God is sovereign in salvation or that man is sovereign in salvation. They can't share sovereignty with that. Jesus told his disciples, and it's representative of all of us who are following his followers, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That, does, again, does not negate your responsibility to believe the gospel. So that's the first good reason. This can't mean that God's foreknowledge influenced his choice of you. The second reason is that it gives man credit for his own salvation. Now, most people who, who believe that God's foreknowledge influenced their decision don't walk around pridefully thinking, oh, I, I, I contributed something myself. Right? So let's give that as a caveat. Right? They're, they're not heretics. They're not taking credit. But that's the net effect of this. If, if you are the deciding factor in your salvation, then you get the credit. And the whole of Ephesians chapter 1 is what? To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It's all about God. And Paul's going to double down on this when we get to chapter 2. He's not going to let off the gas. He is going to keep pushing this very issue to help you stir you up to praise him. This is why God saved you. Yes, you believe that even that faith was not of yourselves. It was a gift of God so that you would not boast, but rejoice in Christ. So he's going to step on the gas pedal. He's going to accelerate even more when you get there. And thirdly, the third reason why 
I say a third theological reason why this passage does not mean that God's foreknowledge uh, influenced his decision to choose you is that it assumes that fallen man can seek after God. That someone can believe without having been, without God's work of initiating that belief in their life. We could go to many passages. If you think about Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Romans 3, 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That's absolute. No one's excluded from that. None. You wouldn't have. Without God initiating work in your life, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have sought after God. Now we talk about those who seek God. Right? It's only in the sense that you could say, look at somebody's life and say, well, they're seeking God. That, that's only a sense that God's already at work in their life. God has initiated something. If somebody is truly seeking God, and, and, and that, that does happen, is because God has already initiated that in their lives. So what does foreknowledge mean? The key to correctly understanding what, what Peter is saying when God has, has, um, has chosen you according to his foreknowledge is, is understand the word what is foreknowledge. That, that word is very important to understand. It, it means to knowing something beforehand or a predetermination of God's omniscient wisdom and intention. So we don't debate the fact that the word means to know beforehand. What we're debating is, does that foreknowledge then impact God's decision that he made beforehand? And I'm arguing that it does not. And, and there's nothing in Scripture to support the fact that it might. And here's how MacArthur explains it. And his explanation is very helpful. And so I'm, I'm going to read to you a lengthy quote just because he's careful with how he explains it. And I think it's helpful for us. Foreknowledge refers to God's eternal, predetermined, loving and saving intention. In first, um, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, Peter used the relative verb was foreknown, a form of uh, a Greek word there in reference to God's knowledge from eternity past that he would send his son to redeem sinners. Um, the usage of the verb cannot mean he looked into future history. You can see that if, if I just break away from his quote a minute. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Speaking of Christ, it says he was foreknown before the foundations of the world sorry, before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So that's what he's talking about, that verse. He's saying that verb cannot mean that God looked into the future history and saw that Jesus would choose to die, so he made him the Savior. In the same way that God the Father foreknew his plan for Christ's crucifixion from the, before the foundation of the world, he foreknew the elect. In neither case was it a matter of mere prior information about what would happen. Therefore, foreknowledge involves God's predetermining to have a relationship with some individuals based on his eternal plan. It is the divine purpose that brings salvation for sinners to fulfillment as accomplished by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, not merely an advanced knowledge that observes how people will respond to God's offer of redemption. Salvation foreknowledge, then, involves God's predetermining to know someone by having an intimate saving relationship, so choosing them from eternity past to receive his redeeming love, unquote. Let me just hit that last point. Salvation foreknowledge then involves God predetermining 
to know someone by having an intimate saving relationship, so choosing them from eternity past to receive his redeeming love. So God's foreknowledge can't be used as like a, a crutch to prop up the idea that, that his foreknowledge influenced his choosing of you. And this is such an important point. Why? Because it results to the praise of his glory. And it, it, it's like that hymn we just sung. I know not why he chose me. He chose me. I don't know why. But knowing that he has should stir up the praise in you. He should stir you to, to rejoice in him and what he has given you. He has made you an inheritance. He chose to do that. There wasn't anything in you that, that caused him to choose that. There wasn't anything that you have done for him that, that caused him to, to choose you. He chose you. He chose to set his love upon you. So rejoice that you are God's inheritance. And, and really, also look at it this way. If, if you are in, the, in Christ, then you are his possession. He will care for you. You don't have to stress and be anxious over, you know, like the world does. You've got a God in heaven who's going to care for you. He's going to provide for you. You are his treasured possession because of who you are in Christ. And he will care for you. And knowing this, we need to be those who are inviting others to this great blessing. You know, when you receive an inheritance, the more siblings you have, the less inheritance you get. But that's not the way that it works with God. Because of the abundance of the blessings. God keeps giving, and he doesn't run out. It's like when Jesus was feeding 7,000 people bread, what happened to the baskets? As he distributed, it just kept like forming. So that there was a ton left over. That's how God gives. And so we, of all people who have been blessed, who are God's inheritance, need to be those who are inviting others into that blessing. Yes, many will reject it. But don't let that dampen the joy that you have for God and the joy that we have of inviting others to such a bountiful, gracious offer of salvation. If you are not in Christ this morning, I just invite you to look to Christ and to seek Him as your Savior, to believe in Him, put your trust in Him, even today, so that all these blessings that we've talked about are yours, and yours in abundance through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word and helping us to, to dig into these things. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be teachable, help us to be submissive to what your word instructs, lead us and guide us, and form Christ in us, and help us to be eager, enthusiastic evangelists of, for Jesus Christ, his ambassadors, inviting others to this bountiful harvest, this bountiful blessing that you have prepared for all those who believe in you. Lord, just do your work through us as a church and as your people um, for your glory and honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials 
at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.